for leading us and Chris and John and Halston for doing such amazing work. And um, kids, I don't know if you can see this, but this is one of my favorite ball caps. I actually have lots of ball caps and this is one of my favorite caps because um, it's from Hawaii, um, from Kailua, where my dad is from. And, um, and I was going to preach with this, but it, it's kind of annoying to preach with a hat on. So, um, so, but I do want to tell you a story that um, Pastor Stephen Matthewson, who I was reading about, tells about um, a church fuss um, that I'm calling Ball Cap Bedlam. A few years ago, there was a church here in the U.S. that lost 15% of its members over a baseball cap or baseball caps. 15% of the people who committed to live and worship together left because of a base because of baseball caps this is what happened a couple of high school athletes were late getting home one saturday night after an away game of some sorts and um, they uh, crashed for a couple of hours and didn't even take a shower but put some clothes on and threw their hats on and showed up at worship they put on nice clothes even but their hairs was a mess and they just wore their ball caps into church on sunday one of the boys' moms was a little anxious about it and explained the situation. That The pastor, of course, shrugged it off and said, no problem. And then things started getting a little bit messy. The next week, the boys decided, well, let's wear the baseball caps again. And then they wore them again. And then the Sunday after that, and fourth or fifth Sunday came along. And then people started getting upset about these baseball caps. So the elders told the pastor that they needed to, that he needed to fix the situation because people were getting worked up about these baseball caps. And the pastor was like, they can wear baseball caps. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, does nothing in the Bible that refuses you to be able to wear baseball caps. There's probably not even baseball caps in the Bible, let's just be honest. Um, and so he thought, well, this is becoming an issue. I'll just ask the boys and uh, to just consider not wearing their caps to the service. And the boys agreed. And they weren't going to wear them anymore. And that's when the parents got upset. And so then the parents were really upset about it. And like it always happens, like it happened at Redeemer and has happened at Redeemer and other churches, gossip, impugning motives, assuming intentions, taking sides, not talking, protecting turf, pulling out your favorite Bible verses, all of it snowballs until 15% of the people left the church without healing, without reconciliation, over ball caps. Or was it? Most of the things that we deal with are not about the things, but some things under the things. And it's one of, one of Paul's main thing in Romans is to be working through this unity and diversity. Unity amid a bunch of ragtag, ostracized Jewish Christians who have to deal with the educated elite Gentile Christians, the Stoics, and the partying Epicureans and Hedonists. And they have to figure out what life in the kingdom of Jesus is like together when they have no, not many natural inclinations towards each other. Friends, in our next few weeks in Romans, we're gonna explore church conflict. We'll do preemptive work on what has been a part of every church split in history. And though some splits have been more legit than others, all of them, because they include humans, have been riddled with 
arrogance and sin and anger and judgment on all parties. And Paul is talking about this kind of thing with us. So do you think in these uncertain times that maybe just possibly we need to hear from the Lord about navigating church conflict and difference among us? Especially when we're rightly concerned about the fiscal and physical future of ourselves and our body and our community. When leaders have to make hard decisions knowing that normal will really not look a lot like nostalgia. Do you think we might have differing ideas about what next steps are best for us to gather and how? Or what changes are required for our life together in the future, from staffing to strategies to, to whatever will have us be flourishing in the future? Do you think maybe we could hear about some church conflicts? conflicts? I think so. So let's start where Paul starts in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. I'm calling this fellowship over fussing or welcome over warring. We could probably spend the next 30 minutes or the, right here or probably the next 30 years right here. So friends, especially those who have seen themselves as more mature in Christ, and I don't think that's, a, that that's not necessarily a bad thing, but those who've been walking with Jesus for a little bit, the fundamental posture to those whose faith is more simple the fundamental posture to those who may be ignorant or even simply wrong about something is to welcome them. Fellowship over fussing. Welcome, not warring against them. Kindness over quarreling. As you approach who Paul calls of weak faith, acceptance over argument. But who are these weak and who are these strong people? Pastor Matthewson says he's not talking about a person who has a lesser commitment to Christ. In fact, they have a stronger commitment to Christ. The problem or weakness is that they have less insight into how their faith decisions uh, or their faith impacts certain decisions about matters that may be in dispute. In the text, the person with stronger conviction is actually the person who is weak, while the one who has a looser conviction is the one who is strong. The strong do not hold their view with more intensity it just happened to be more accurate. They're, they're closer to our biblical assessment of what might be quarreled over. And so the general guideline here is when you are tempted to fuss, when you are quarreling, pick up the phone and go get coffee. Take a walk six feet apart or invite someone to dinner outside with proper distancing. Connect with each other. Talk about it. Those who are conflict avoidant, please, I beg you, the Bible doesn't say don't worry about it or sweep it under the rug or bless your heart. It doesn't say kill them with kindness or pretend nothing happened or slightly distance yourself from ever being hurt again. It says welcome them. And for those who love us or who love to fuss, excuse me, for Italians like me who mistake intensity for intimacy, for a good argument for bonding, it says welcome the person, not, not the fight. The person, not the fight. Don't be really patient with them just so you can fix their theology or their ethics at the end. 
Don't endure niceties to get to the debate. Don't confront or correct, but enjoy and connect. Welcome over warring. There's plenty of legitimate fussing in the, in the scriptures. Paul confronts Peter and James and a ton of other people, but there's a whole lot of non-legit fussing too. And so we have to ask, at this case, what are they, we don't always know what to fuss about, but we know in these cases what not to fuss about. And so what are they fussing about here? Well, at least diet in days. Diet. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Apparently, there were herbivores and omnivores and vegans and meat eaters in 55 AD as well. Well, unlike the Corinthians, this is not about the food being sacrificed to idols. We're not sure why the people are um, refraining from meat in Rome. It's an issue of conscience for them. But we know it was causing problems. But it wasn't just diet, it was also days. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. In verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, he says. Apparently, there were folks who still lit the menorah and folks who still participated in the plebeian games in November. And for Jews and Gentiles, like all cultures, food and festive days are central to their cultures. There is no New Orleans without Mardi Gras. Think about the Seder feasts or American Thanksgiving or German Oktoberfest or Islam's Ramadan or Eastern Orthodox's Lent. These are all religious, cultural, and identity practices of diet and days. And therefore, it's not just about diet and days. It's actually about discipleship. For them, it wasn't just silly scruples or arrogant legalism. It was more. Just like baseball caps aren't about baseball caps. Or kneeling during an anthem isn't about kneeling. It's about a person's perspective of a disrespect or a dishonoring or honoring or respecting a tradition. Days and diets are about discipleship. It now, it is now and was then about what faithfulness would look like in our day. In some circles, this is called a world and life view. And that gets fussed over a good bit. We can't be sure of who the weaker faith per people were, but as Jen said, we know that at least it was, it was, it was one aspect of the people who were the weaker faith people were Jews who were used to keeping kosher and keeping Sabbath. These are heartfelt patterns of what seemed like faithfulness to God for them. It's like certain forms of patriotism or racial or political or gender identity for some of us. They're more core than we give them credit for because they animate us in different kinds of ways. So, I say, let's explore some of ours. Around days, around Sundays. Some of you, some of you really dislike that Redeemer loosely, loosely participates in the liturgical calendar. Talking about Advent and Epiphany and Lent and Eastertide, as Chris said, seems like a dead orthodoxy. It seems hollow, not hallowed. And others are thankful because they love participating with the universal church. And they feel this, uh, uh, this new vocabulary and, and really a, a new way to keep time and mark our days. Some of you have 
an aversion to congregational responses because it, it seems like it's a kind of a rote tradition. And some of you experience that as a harmony of truth, like a chorus of unified testimonies to the world. Some are distracted by music and pray, behind prayers and readings or worse you judge it. For others, it warms your heart and helps them see the beauty and hear the beauty of the prayer and the word. It's like incense brought before the Lord. Some, think, some people think sermons should be 30 minutes and the pastor should preach 50 times or 150 times if you're supposed to preach Sunday night and Wednesday, afternoon, Wednesday evening. Others like it 15 minutes. Others like it 45 minutes and would love the pulpit to be filled with many different people. What about habits of food or consuming and celebration? Some of us wouldn't let tobacco touch our lips and others have a dip in right now or will in just a bit. Some of us sip champagne at our children's baptism. My mom dipped her finger into her glass and swiped the lips of Carver and Springer when they were baptized. And others have been so burned by alcohol that they will never or will never touch, they have never or will never touch the stuff. Some of you would consider a wedding toast with alcohol a breach of conscience and a stumbling block to many. Others would consider a dry wedding a departure from the model of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Some of us joined the PCA because we thought it meant pipe cigars and alcohol. And Christian, Christian liberty was our barbaric yop. And some of us joined because we heard the liberating power of grace that freed us from being reliant on those things, those very things that would bring us down. Some of you are hardcore vegans for moral issues. And even though I think Morrissey is wrong and I still love him, meat is not murder. And yet there are good reasons to refrain from a cruel system of animal slaughter that exists in human indulgence at the expense of profit and the pain of others, even animals. Some of you would have absolutely no issue of conscience if marijuana were legal in North Carolina, and some of would you never would should never because the Lord has not freed you to do that. And some of you are upset that I even brought up marijuana in a sermon. But it's not just days and diets; it's also doctrine, a world and life view. Every Calvinist I've ever met, new Calvinist I've ever met, is a bull in a china shop. And some of you are wondering, well, why are people so particular about certain uh, theological categories? Some of us have hard theological positions of the best form of government, proper state response to immigration, our doctrine of end times, the length of creation days. And some of us believe they know, know which candidate everyone should vote for in every election. And some of us believe that the whole system is so corrupt that it doesn't matter who we vote for. Some of us believe that the epidemiologists and politicians are fools because they won't open North Carolina and others say that they are fools for even talking about opening up at all. And Paul's not saying that there's not truth. He's not saying that, that uh, he is saying that it is true that truth is not always the most important thing in a gospel community. He's not saying don't worry and be lazy thinkers who just do what you want. He's saying that some things are more important than theological or ethical precision or positions. In fact, ironically, it is a better theology and a better ethic to hold that theology and ethics are less important than this welcome of relationship, according to this passage.
Because he knows that if we lead with difference first and correction, that it will impede love and it will impede the honor of Christ in bringing people from different places together to his glory. See, he knows what's under the fussing. That's what verse three is about. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. You can tell Paul was a pastor because he's got to deal with lots of people with lots of different opinions about things and trying to figure it out. And he gets how communities can break into pieces because of judgment and hatred. Those with good takes on theology are always tempted to hate, minimize, despise those in error. And those who hold passionate convictions and adherence to some, some aspect of their discipleship are always tempted to judge with those who have seemingly less serious standards. It is innate into who we are that must be redeemed by Jesus. And Paul gets this. You know this. Once you got woke about something, we become the woke police, right? Not sure how anyone could be so ignorant as not to be woke like us, like as if three weeks ago, we were just as unwoke as they are. See, if any of us judge folks or despise folk, see if that happens in our community. Don't you think? In our community who loves each other, who cares deeply about each other, where you send your kids to school or don't, where you buy a house, car, vacations, education, views on counseling or psychology, politics or political philosophy, Sabbath keeping, child rearing techniques, Creation days and evolution, worship styles, women in church leadership, modes and baptism, all this stuff matters to, to one degree or another. But all of it can be an occasion for smugness and anger and judgment and derision and mockery and arrogance and judgmentalism and division. And that's what Paul is getting at. We need to be much more connected and closely connected with other Christians and churches because we are one church. And if we can't be in the same denomination, I get it. There should be a sweet welcome, though, and fellowship with any creedal church in the city. That's the standard I use. The apostles are Nicene Creed. If anyone holds that, well, then we can work it out. As far as ethics, that's a little harder these days. Identity ethics are, 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 um, have thrown a wrench into old categories, so we have a work to do on this. But let us do it first with our creedal brothers and sisters in an act of welcome. Welcome because he has welcomed us. It's gonna be sweet sometimes. It's gonna be confusing most of the times. It's gonna be frustrating. It's gonna be awkward. It's gonna be challenging, but it is the welcomed fellowship of the welcomed people. Listen to John Murray here, who is a no stranger to church conflict himself. The way by which advancement in understanding and faith is to be secured is not by contempt or ostracism, but by fellowship, esteem, forbearance, considerateness, not by provoking vexatious questionings and by disputings, but by edification in the bosom of Christian love and fellowship. That's awesome. So being right 
or sincere are not the most important things, especially because judgment and despising run in their wakes so easily. So right wrongly is just wrong, and sincerity with judgment is just judgmentalism. And the Bible says that it is 100% truth that truth is not always the most important thing. Truth does not eclipse unity. Of course, unity does not eclipse truth. But manner eclipses both the welcome of God because of who God is to his people. Love, patience, kind, and welcome eclipses both because those who need to see clearly need to see clearly that. So what's the way forward? Is Paul abandoning truth? No. He's in no way denying personal truth, denying universal truth or strong ethical standards. It is Paul, for goodness sake. And without denying people's individual consciences as they relate to it. And over the ne next few weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about um, giving of yourself and delaying your own gratification for the sake of your brother and sister. But fundamental to this whole thing is that the way of unity amid diversity for the church is this, the utter reliance upon Jesus to define our relationships with him and each other. Hear me again, the utter reliance upon Jesus to define our relationships with him and each other. Jesus is the Lord, not us. Jesus is the judge, not us. We could put both Lord and judge back on, uh, on uh, Miss Jen's um, mantle back there. I mean, he says this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, his own Lord, that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse six, the one who observes the day observes in honor of his Lord or of the Lord. The one who eats, it's in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Jesus is the Lord of his church and his people in it. And we are not. We ain't it. He's the chief. We're not it, chief. Jesus is the judge, not us. Just like Jen put on her mantle. Why do we pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you weren't able to check out Jen's email this weekend, she reminds us of Matthew Henry's incredible words. We make ourselves our brother's masters and do in effect usurp the throne of God when we take upon us thus to judge them, especially to judge their thoughts and intentions, which are out of our view. God sees not as man sees, and he is their master, their Lord, and not we. John Stott says something very similar. The secret of our relationships with one another in the Christian church, especially when we have our differences, is, he says, Jesus Christ is Lord. To despise or stand in judgment on a fellow Christian isn't just a breach of fellowship. Listen to this. It is the denial of the lordship of Jesus. He says, we need to say it to ourselves, who am I that I would cast myself in the role of another Christian's Lord or judge? I must be willing for Jesus Christ to be not only my Lord and judge, 
but also my fellow Christians, Lord and Judge. I must not interfere with Christ's lordship over other Christians. And then, because this hit home to me pretty significantly this week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks specifically to Christians and ministers in particular. Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others, that that's the service that they render. They forget that listening is a greater service than speaking. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because Christians, these Christians are talking where they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon no longer be listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. And this is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. And in the end, there's nothing left but spiritual chatter. That's sobering, which is why the most important part of this passage are verses seven through nine, a balm to all of us who struggle with judgment and despising, who let our sincerity or sincerity or our biblical conviction outrun our love. Because Paul doesn't just tell us that he is the, that Jesus is judge and that Jesus is Lord. He tells us that Jesus is savior. And so we are not judge. We are not Lord. We are not savior, but we have one. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Y'all, in the end, we are un unforgiving and fussing and ornery because basically we just think we're better than others. But at the cross, where Jesus died and brought in all our sin and folly, we're all equal there at its feet, at his feet. And the beauty of this story is that we no longer live outside of him and we will not die outside of him. We aren't his. We aren't the savior, but the savior has us in life and in death. I guess what Paul's saying in this passage, there's just two things. We can guarantee that when we end up in glory, that we will realize that we had some significant ethical and theological problems. We missed some stuff. And we were arrogant and foolish in how we treated each other in that. So in the meantime, have some humility until that, that day comes. And humility doesn't mean apathy. It just means humility. And the second and most important thing we need to know or remember is that you can guarantee that when we see clearly, you will realize that our Lord in life and death has loved us and cared for us. And you and I and our fellow arrogant people and foolish Christians have been cared for and loved in a way that will make us so grateful for him, bring him so much worship and praise to him. 
And frankly, we will not just shower gratitude on him, but even the people we most vehemently disagree and is still our brothers and sisters now. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Y'all, I think this week is the week I, I most desperately miss having the Lord's Supper with you. I most desperately miss it because you and I would come to the supper, believing the gospel, not just for ourselves, but believing the gospel for each other as we come down there together. And so let your heart ache for that. When we can't do it now, let your heart ache for it, to long for it, because there'll be a great day. Even if COVID takes over for the rest of our lifetime, there'll be a great day when we will eat together and we will believe the gospel for ourselves and each other because Jesus owns us in life and death. Amen.